The master's men are affectionately known as the 300-year-old quartet. <laughs> Love those guys. They sang last Sunday night in our service a, a more gospel song. It was a fun time to be with them. Uh, this morning we continue our sermon series on worship. And we've had, we have just three morning messages left in this series, and it's been such an enriching series for me, I know personally, and I hope it has for you. And from the comments that many of you have made, it has certainly been that. And I'm glad it has, as we have learned more and more about this thing we call worship. Uh, This thing we call worship is far more than just singing songs or hymns or having a song service and then a preaching time. There's much more to this thing we call worship than that. We've seen that it is a high privilege of us as believers. We've seen that it should be our priority as a church, and it should be our priority as individual Christians. We've seen that uh, God promises to be with us in worship. He promises to be with us and inhabit the praises of his people. And we've talked about different postures that we can use when we worship the Lord. This morning we consider the power of worship. And what I mean by that is what can we anticipate that God will do in worship, specifically our corporate worship gatherings? What are some results that we can expect to see? Now we might say come to worship expecting something to happen. But what is it that we need to expect? As we pray in preparation for Sunday, what are some things that we can pray expecting God to answer? To help us in answering this question, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. And as you're turning, just to give you an idea of where we are as we jump into the middle of Acts, uh, Paul has recently been called to go over to Macedonia. And he has done so, and as he is gone, he, Silas, Luke, and Timothy have all journeyed to Philippi, which was the leading city of that particular district of Macedonia. And they stayed there for several days, and Luke relates the most amazing day of their time, probably, and the events that led up to that. As we look at Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. Luke records, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept our practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 
Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. The week had started off easy enough. Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy were simply going to prayer meeting. They were going to the place of prayer, minding their own business, going to worship. Suddenly, a demon-possessed slave girl comes up and starts following the four missionaries. And that was okay. It would have been fine, I suppose. Except she continued yelling and kept on every day, day after day. She wouldn't take a hint. She couldn't be lost. She wouldn't go away. She was like a buzzing mosquito that you can't catch. And finally, Paul had had enough. He turned to the demon and he commanded that demon to be gone. Problem solved, right? Not at all. That was just the beginning. For you see, this woman was making her owners a lot of money. The demon helped the girl predict a future and probably then, with the help of other demons, allowed that future he had just predicted to happen. And so she had proved a profitable slave girl for her masters. So the owners dragged Paul and Silas, the leaders of the missionary gang, to the authorities and then trumped up charges to get them in trouble. Because they certainly couldn't say, you know, this guy has busted our business. In keeping with Roman practice and law, Paul and Silas were ordered to be stripped and beaten with rods. Now, we don't know exactly how severe this pummeling was, but Luke says that it was severe. Luke watched it happen. I imagine if they're beaten with rods, their backs were bruised and likely lacerated. Their arms and legs aching from blows that had hit them up and down. I imagine some wounds had even opened up on their bodies and were now encrusted with blood and dirt where the men had been covered in a dust cloud as they were being beaten and as they fell to the ground and their sweat and their blood hit the dust and turned into mud and then dried. Paul and Silas were thrown into jail. 
Their feet were locked up tight in stocks and chains attached to them. And the guard was commanded to keep careful watch. The afternoon turned into evening. I suppose it was afternoon. We really don't know. Because the next time we find out, it's midnight. And there are Paul and Silas in jail. And they're still not asleep. We can see why they're not asleep. They're hurting. If you've ever worked a long day in your yard and your bones and muscles are hurting, you probably have trouble sleeping at night. But these guys had been beaten. And they hadn't been able to clean and nurse those wounds. They were still crusted. And some of them may have opened back up as they tried to get a little bit more comfort. And there they are in that prison without Tylenol PM or a leave or anything else. Aching. Bewildered. Defeated? No. Imagine yourself in that prison that night. And all you can hear is the breath, the breath of other prisoners. You can't see anything because it's probably pitch black. You're not going to leave a lamp burning or a torch burning with a prisoner. Sitting in that dark silence where you can't even see your hand in front of your face, you hear the breath of those around you. You hear the occasional moan of someone. You hear chains rattle. But then in the stillness of that night, you hear a song. First, one of the prisoners, probably faint at first, weakened, but growing stronger as another prisoner joins to sing as well. We don't know what Paul and Silas sang. Perhaps they sang some of the Hebrew songs that they knew from their time being good Jews. Or perhaps they sang some of the new songs that were coming about in the Christian faith. Something like Paul wrote to the Philippians later in Philippians chapter 2. That hymn of Christ being a servant. That probably been a good one. In spite of their aching backs and unmercifully cramped positions, Paul and Silas mustered the spiritual and physical stamina to worship. The other prisoners listened as the sound echoed through the jail from the inner cell on outward. The singing continued. We can imagine what it would have sounded like. In the midst of a dark and hopeless situation, worship happened. Resounding worship. Comforting worship. Encouraging worship. Life-transforming worship. The jailer was startled. Because suddenly the ground began to shake as Paul and Silas sang. The pebbles started to fell from the stone walls around. The bolts that had been holding the chains into the wall rattled out and the chains fell to the ground. The doors to the cell, the hinges began to shake and the screws fell out and the latches let loose and the gates fell crashing down. And the jailer woke up out of his deep sleep, wondering... What was going on? He looked 
in the darkness and saw that the door to the cells were all open. He knew that the prisoners would escape. What prisoner would stay in a jail that had the the doors open on it? And so he picked up his sword and began to bring it to his chest when all of a sudden he said, he heard, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And Paul stepped from the shadows. The jailer called for lights and hurriedly others who had gathered lit lamps and torches to see what was going on and to see if all the prisoners were there. And sure enough, one by one, man to man, head count completed. Everyone was still there. The jailer rushed to Paul and Silas. He fell trembling at their feet. He brought them forward and he knew his life on this earth had been saved. But now he wanted His eternal life saved. And he said, what must I do to be saved? You see, the jailer saw something in Paul and Silas that he wanted. I don't know when it happened. Probably as he was hurriedly rushing them into the prison, he saw in Paul and Silas something different than he saw in most prisoners. He saw that they didn't talk back. They didn't curse back. They didn't say, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to get you. They didn't give him any lip. They just did what they had to do. And now in this moment, as he thinks back on who these guys had been yesterday and who they are now early in the morning and what he had just experienced, having seen the power of worship in their lives, he says, sirs, what must I do? To be saved. Well, we read what happened. He explained how to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. We read in 30, verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. Is that not a beautiful picture? A total change from a few hours before when this jailer had hurriedly pushed these guys into the inner cell. And now he's brought them out of the inner cell into his own home, seated around his own table, and they are enjoying a meal together. He is now a believer. His whole family has now been saved. And they now gather and probably worshiped together. It was the power of God that inhabits our worship that brought this about. It's the power of worship. Positive, powerful results should occur during our congregational worship experiences. Paul and Silas experienced great results of their worship. The jailer even experienced the great results of his worship. And no doubt all of those prisoners who had been gathered around Paul and Silas during that worship service experienced the results of that worship. This morning I'd like to explore Several possible benefits of worship for Christians, for the local church, and for non-Christians. The first, the power of worship blesses Christians with inspired wonder, invigorated faith, and involved service. In the midst of a dark and difficult situation, Paul and Silas turned to worship. There was little else they could do. That evening as they experienced excruciating pain in the cell. 
I suppose they could have complained like many of us would. Man, I hurt. This is terrible. Where is God in the midst of this? Shouldn't he have like thrown these people off of us? But they didn't do any of that. They just began to sing. They began to worship. And as they worshiped, they were lifted up and God inhabited the praises of his people. We too can be lifted up in worship because worship lifts us up by causing us to be inspired by God's wonder. When we worship, we come into God's presence and we encounter God. And while we are there, we converse with God. And when we come most in contact with God, we experience His wonder and His mystery. We sang this morning about seeing different things and then declaring how great He is. The old Latin word for the wonder of God was mysterium tremendum. Do you hear the mystery in that? It kind of makes you want to shake. The mysterium tremendum. The tremendous mystery of God. Being there and inspiring our wonder and knowing that he is so far above us. As Paul and Silas worshipped, they were reminded of God's wonder. They were reminded that God was bigger than that cell. He was bigger than what they were doing. The calling that they had was bigger than this particular moment within their calling. And they knew that God had plans for them. When we come into God's presence... We're inspired by God's wonder and we are humbled because we realize that no matter how much we know, no matter how much, how smart we are, no matter how much we think we can figure out God and his universe, we really don't know it all. We really know very little. We are finite and God is infinite. He is infinite. Worship inspires wonder in Almighty God. And the more we lose ourselves in the wonder and worship of God, the more that experience becomes an occasion, occasion in which we find ourselves as beneficiaries of the grace and goodness of God. And that then invigorates us in the faith. We need a weekly pep rally when we can come together and learn that we can continue on with Jesus. We need to be able to come together and sing the great hymns of the faith. And celebrate how great our God is. And that no matter what's going on, it is well with my soul. We need that kind of assurance in our life and in our faith. How many times have you found yourself near the end of your rope until you came into worship? And a song or a testimony, or a prayer, or special music, or an instrumental piece, or just a loving tap on the back or a hug from a fellow member encouraged you and gave you what you needed to be invigorated in the faith and to move forward. Paul and Silas experienced that in the jail that night. Bruised and beaten, sore and souring, they worshipped. And in the midst of defeat, God brought amazing triumph. He sat down among them. He was enthroned in that cell on their praises. And he invigorated them in their faith. Worship 
renews our sense of purpose. It strengthens our spiritual muscles. In worship, we look at what God has done. We look at what he is doing. We look at what he will do. And we are reminded of all that God is. And we respond to him. And as we respond, that invigorates us in the faith. We cannot help but be encouraged and renewed. And as we are inspired by God's wonder and invigorated in the faith, then we are Encouraged to be more involved in service. Worship at its best is service to God. It's fitting that we call it a worship service because we're doing service to God. Worship is an activity to be known by personal participation of service, not just simply observation. Somehow worship has become more Of an observation event. Some of it's the way we have to design buildings. And they're kind of designed like other theaters and auditorium. Where there's a audience and a stage. But in the church it's different. It's not an audience. It's a congregation for an audience of one. And this isn't a stage. I try to avoid that language. It's simply a platform so you can see and hear. That's all it is. It's not to be observed. It's to be participated in. To be part of the service of God. But even after we serve God in worship. As we start to think about the week ahead. We start to think about the ministries of the church. And we start to think. Man, God has gifted me to be involved in that kind of stuff. And I can serve God. And I want to. And I'm going to get out and do that. And so we find ourselves looking for places to serve. Trying out places to serve. And then being further fulfilled as we serve. It's been so wonderful to hear church members and and others recently sharing about how blessed they've been with the power of worship in our church. We have people who are encountering God in new ways, who are being invigorated in their faith, who are eagerly serving and desiring other places to serve. It's wonderful. In fact, as I was driving home Wednesday night, I was just giving God praise for what he's doing. As we were standing in the parking lot. We commented several times, oh man, look how full the parking lot is on Wednesday night. And I remember when it wasn't. And as people began to come in from their various activities, the ladies from the new, the first place group were talking about the new group that started and how excited they were. And, and that was exciting. And as the GPS people came in and started talking about people they'd witnessed to and things they encountered over Wednesday night, it was encouraged to see that we were going out and doing ministry. And you could just see all of these little fires going over excitement of service that was happening in the church. And all of that traces back to a spark that begins here in this room in worship. When we gather together and we meet before Almighty God and He speaks to us, He invigorates us, He inspires us, and He pushes us out to be involved in service. That leads me to talk about the benefits of worship For our church. The power of worship blesses First Baptist Church Pineville by enriching our community and empowering us for our mission. When we gather for worship as First Baptist Church Pineville, we gather as a group of believers who have united ourselves together. To use the imagery of Paul and others, we are one body in Christ. All of us is a different 
part of that body in Christ is our head. But we're unified together. First Baptist Church Pineville walking around. To use another image, we are a family. We're the extended family of God. And we have our family reunion every Sunday morning. And to use a statement we use here, we do life together. The focus is on that we are together. We are in community. And worship enriches our community. A key component of worship is relationship. We've talked about that. You can't worship God unless you have a relationship with Him. Relationship with God is important, but also our relationship with other believers is important in worship. If there is strife and conflict in a church, worship will be dead in that church. I guarantee you. It doesn't matter how good the performance is, it's going to be dead. It doesn't matter what style of music is used, it's going to be dead. The prayers seem to hit the ceiling, the sermons fall flat. When there is no fellowship, worship is dead. But when the church has healthy relationships, worship is vibrant. And we can say the same things. It doesn't matter the quality of the performance. The worship is alive. It doesn't matter the style. The worship is alive. It doesn't matter because the fellowship is so strong and the people are united to come together and worship the Lord. And they're excited about it. And they just look to Him. We have that here at First Pineville, don't we? I think we do. That's why we can come together, and if the organ transposes too soon, that's all right. We just keep worshiping the Lord. Because that's what we're focused on. It's a beautiful thing to come into worship and be enriched by the community. Sometimes we come to worship spiritually strong, and we get to help those who are spiritually weak on that particular day. And then there are those days when we come to worship spiritually weak. And we get to encourage those, or be encouraged by those who are strong. But it's not only our members who are blessed by relationship and community and worship being enriched. I've been so encouraged by our guests who have shared with me and others how warmly welcomed they have felt by our church. Well, that makes a good difference, and it it makes your pastor feel good. To hear a guest say, I have not been welcomed in a church like this one has ever. We need to keep it that way. That's why I encourage you so often to know your congregational neighborhood. Those few pews in front of you, behind you, and beside you. Look around. Everybody sits in the same place. Know those people. When somebody new comes in, greet them. Minister to them, get to know them. Whether you know them or not, whether they look like you or not, welcome them. Make them feel apart. It's so easy in our church for someone to fall through the cracks. And yet, even though it's easy for them to do that, it is inexcusable if they do. Because you're there and you know where they're sitting. And you can minister to them. Worship also enriches our community by reminding us that we're not alone in this thing. I'm always encouraged when I hear you sing, especially without the instruments, because it reminds me that we're a mighty army and we're going forward. Now, I'm not advocating us being Church of Christ and not using instruments or anything. I just think we sound incredible as a church 
when we sing a cappella. And it is encouraging to me because I think, man, that sounded better today than it did last year because we're a growing body and we're moving forward. And that's how worship empowers us for mission. It doesn't just enrich us in community, but it empowers us for mission as we come together. Our goal to build a First Baptist Church Pineville that's effective and life-changing and community-transforming is dawning. Just looking around this room and knowing that we could seat another five or six hundred people every Sunday is a dawning task. But let me tell you something. We're empowered for our mission when all of us actually show up together for the same Sunday. And we start to see, you know, those pews right there used to be empty. And now look how they're filling in. Boy, did you see how that section was full? Did you see how the choir was full? What happened to the choir today? Man, Melanie ran away and everybody ran away with her. But when everybody's together, don't you see it? You start looking around and you go, man, this is exciting. This is different. And you're empowered in the mission. We're growing. We're making progress. We're seeing lives change. This is encouraging. And then not just attendance, but when someone's life story trickles through our church, we're empowered for our mission as we hear about how the body of Christ has ministered to that person. There's literally ministry that happens in this church every week, if not every day, that I only hear about through the grapevine, and that's good. And I know there's ministry that happens that I don't hear about. That's encouraging because the people are working and ministering. Each week, when we finish the service, we have a closing prayer, and we call it the benediction, and the idea is time to go home now. But there's more to that than just a way of saying the end it's a way of encouraging us and empowering us for the mission as we go out some churches in their liturgy will say the service is ended go and love and serve the lord and each other some churches will have above their doors or on their signs as you leave the parking lot you're now entering a mission field i'm told the old roman mass simply said get out it's like man They didn't even have electricity back then. They weren't worried about turning off the lights. But the thrust was this. You've been here long enough. You've been enriched. You've been discipled. Now, get out and go do the mission that we've been given by Christ. I've been grateful for the last few weeks as we've done done GPS because we're getting out. I purposefully planned not to teach a Bible study on Wednesday night because I knew if I did, there'd be some people that would do that. Just out of obligation when they really need to be getting out. And frankly, it would have been a whole lot easier for me to teach a Bible study than get out of my comfort zone and get out. But we needed to get outside the building. And we've been seeing wonderful things take place. As we've been ministering to people and building bridges and and making relationships, knocking on those doors in the area around our church and meeting needs and praying with people. Jennifer Pastor and I have been... uh, Team partners for the last few weeks, and this week we were finally initiated. That means you had a door slammed in your face. And it was by an otherwise sweet-looking lady, but not interested. And we went, okay. And I mean, you talk about sucking the joy. It was like, and I was like, I'm ready to go home now. (laughs) Wasn't that right, Jennifer? But you know what? Just a door or so down. We met a sweet Methodist man 
who invited us in his home. We talked with him, kind of built us up. Next door, we met a man who was the most humble man we've met in our time, who seemed so grateful that we were there and just was so moved as we prayed for him. Sweet time. But you know what really bothered me is that I was convicted that the guy that was so humble and so nice has been living there for two years. And we didn't know it, and he's literally behind the church. Why? Because we've been in instead of out. We need to be going out, and worship empowers us to do that. We realize that we serve a great God who can break chains down and bust Christians out of, out of uh, the prison in Acts. And we say, we can do this. We can go knock on a door. And if the door gets slammed in our face, so what? We'll go to the next house and the next house. We've got to get out. I could probably mention many other benefits of the power of worship for individual Christians in the church. But I think it's important to move on to the power of worship for non-Christians. It's one of the most exciting things about this passage in Acts. The power of worship blesses the non-Christians among us by engaging them with grace And enrolling them in the kingdom. In our text, the Philippian jailer and his entire household come to faith in Christ. And this was very much the result of a powerful worship experience. It was an extreme worship experience. Through this worship, God miraculously loosened the physical chains of Paul and Silas. So they could then loosen the spiritual chains of the jailer. You see, the miracle really was not to free Paul and Silas. The miracle was done so that the jailer might be set free. Through our worship, non-Christians should be engaged by grace. Like that jailer was when he saw Paul and Silas and he saw something different about them, yet similar to him. So non-Christians who come into our church should see that. Non-Christians should look around the room and see people who are basically just like they are, except saved. They shouldn't see a bunch of people who are trying to put on a good face and act like they have it all together, but to see people who are going through life with Christ. And we still struggle with temptation and we still struggle with the diseases that that we have and, and the wondering if the treatment's going to work or not. And we still struggle with our kids and we still struggle with our marriages. But we have Christ to walk us through those times. And those non-Christians around us should be able to look and see the grace of God in our lives and in our worship. I love what... Welton Gaddy says in his book, The Gift of Worship, he says, For a non-Christian, a recognition of Christian worship can be like an unexpected slap in the face. First comes shock, and then sensitivity. You see, true worship should bring a non-Christian to the point where they are brought into the presence of God and they realize who God is. They can sit in another auditorium with 300 people and watch Alice in Wonderland. But when they sit in this room with these 300 people, it should be a different atmosphere than it is in that theater. They should be able to know that there's a different presence here than there is elsewhere. This is what happened to the jailer in Acts. He was slapped with the amazing presence of God. That 
presence of God had loosened the prisoners, but had caused the prisoners not to run, but to stay. So that something more might take place. And that complete work of God, from bringing Paul and Silas into prison, to loosening them, to bringing them before the jailer, to engaging him with grace, then allowed God to tug at that jailer's heart and enroll him in the kingdom. See, worship should cause people to want what we have. A worshiping congregation that's experiencing a day where God is doing something fresh and new and vibrant among them will attract people who are looking for meaning and purpose and joy in their lives. We should hope a non-Christian could walk in our worship service and be looking around. Because let me tell you, they're curious and they're going to be looking around. And they're going to say, is this for me? And they're going to look at each one of us. And they're going to say, are they for real? And let me tell you. They can tell if we are or not. Whether you are not very expressive in your worship, they can tell if you're real or not. Whether you are very expressive in your worship or not, they can tell if you're real or not. Because they see something special. A non-Christian can watch us and determine. He or she can look at a believer and it's almost like they can see our heart. Our time of worship can be a great time of evangelism. Doors probably aren't going to fly open and things start falling from the roof. But lives can still be transformed. Other kinds of chains can be broken. Spiritual chains can fall. Spiritual prison doors can burst wide open as the presence of God comes into those people's lives. A result of our worship each week should be that someone looks up and says, I want what these people have. I don't know what it is, but I want it. I don't know what I experienced here today, but I want to be there again. Because there's something real about that place. You can have a big church and we can fill every seat and this place be as dead as this pulpit. But we can have what we have now. And we can be alive and we can grow and we can feel this place. And this place will be more alive than any flowers that are blooming this spring. I'm sure there are some here today who have yet to trust Christ. And you've probably been looking around watching us today. And let me just tell you, from the people I know here, they're real. They're real. From young adults to senior adults, I've seen them be real. So if you're looking for Christ today, you can find him. It's very simple to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You simply do exactly what Paul and Silas told the jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That belief there is not just an assent that he exists but that you are putting your faith in him. I'm going to trust you, Jesus, for my salvation. I know you died for my sins. I know I need you to cover my sins, and so I give my life to you. I want you to be the boss of my life, to be the Lord of my life. The word is very simple, that when you do that, you will be saved. And the consequential result of that can be quite amazing as it was in the jailer's life. Not only you can be saved, but your whole household. 
as the witness of your life in their life begins to spread like a drop on water. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I encourage you to do that today. If you're not sure, if you still have questions, tell us that. And let us find someone who can help you understand the answers to your questions. It may be that you're a believer here today and you say, Pastor, I don't know that I'm getting all that I should out of worship. I'm not seeing the benefits. Then I encourage you to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I see these benefits that we've talked about today. Show me what I can do in my life to help those to occur when I worship. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then Mr. Lowe is going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. And if you're making a decision today for Christ or to join this church or anything else that you need to make public, I'll be down front waiting to hear from you. And you just come and say, I, need, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I have questions about receiving Jesus, or I want to join this church. And we'll make sure that you are taken care of this morning. May we pray together. Lord Jesus, we had come before you today. And we're standing amazed in your presence, knowing that you are alive and well in our church. God, I thank you for the wonderful benefits that we are seeing, we have seen. And I pray that the results would continue and that we would see the power of worship in our place. God, we want to see lives transformed. And we pray that that can happen today as we continue in worship. As we give ourselves over to you, opening our hearts to you and declaring that we will say yes to whatever it is you're saying to our heart right now. We give you ourselves and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.